This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon, Learning Resurrection Faith, is by Scott Cunningham and is part one of The Resurrection School, Learning New Life from Jesus. Some of you may remember the TV show Extreme Home Makeover. Uh, It aired in the early 2000s and along with YouTube videos of soldiers coming home through airports will 100% make you cry. Uh, If you never saw it, basically it was this team of really amazing like home renovators and they would find these precious families who are in need. It'd be like a single mom working a couple jobs and they've got like eight kids and one of them is fighting cancer and then they give them this new home and it's like a tour de force. I think they stopped airing it because we just all got tired of weeping every single week. Anyways, one time I experienced something fascinating. So I was in a church service, and the preacher was preaching on this uh, verse from the Bible. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, it was a good sermon, but it got really interesting when he showed a clip from Extreme Home Makeover. In about 30 seconds, everybody was helplessly suppressing tears, including myself, and trying not to show it. But then, the clip ended, we panned back from Extreme Home Makeover to Jesus in the Bible, and slowly but surely, the eyes dried up. I remember being, I remember as it happened, being taken aback by that experience. I thought, why are we helpless before this reality TV show? Not only here, but week after week. But Jesus, emptying himself to the point of death for our sake, has such a hard time capturing our imaginations. I realized as I kind of mulled on that for a while that it had everything to do with faith and sight. We could visibly see Extreme Home Makeover, the neediness, the kindness of the people. But we were then asked to believe in something we could not see. And I'm sure for most of us, it just felt like an abstract concept. That day in the pews, it was the tension of what we could see and what we could not. This passage in John, really famous, Doubting Thomas, contains that same tension. Thomas hears about Jesus being alive and walking around, and he doesn't buy it. He basically says, yeah, right. Jesus is dead. I've seen his tomb. Unless I physically see him and touch him, I'm not going to believe in that. Thomas, unfortunately, has been labeled a doubter for the rest of Christian history, but take it easy on him. Has not every single one of us thought, this would be a lot easier if I could just see Jesus. Or, I will totally dive in and follow Jesus, but I just need him to manifest it to me in some special, unique way. To make it even more difficult, it's not just belief in like a spiritual realm or God, it's belief in the physical tangible resurrection of Jesus Christ, an actual guy. Um, I heard an interview with uh, the poet Mary Oliver recently, and she said that she grew up learning a lot about Christianity, but she she could never become a Christian because of the resurrection. It was just too hard for her. She felt like Thomas, just like, that's just too much for me to be asked to believe in. Now, graciously, Jesus did allow Thomas the same experience the other disciples had. He appeared to Thomas. Thomas took his fingers and stuck them into the wounds of Jesus. And then he fell down and cried out, my Lord and my God. But that's not the point of this passage. The point is what that sets Jesus up to say right afterwards in verse 29. 
Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. This is the first Sunday after Easter, and last week we celebrated the resurrection. I want to focus this morning on that one phrase from Jesus. How is it possible, first of all, to believe in the resurrection without seeing it? Even more, Jesus says we're blessed if we do, almost like it's better for us if we believe without seeing. How is that possible? In order to put some flesh on the bones of of what Jesus is saying, this morning I want to talk about sight and faith and the differences of how that interacts with belief when we believe, but also what happens to us when we learn to believe in the resurrection, even if we don't see it. Every single one of us has not experienced, that I know of, seeing Jesus and getting the opportunity Thomas had. And all of us feel that desire. Jesus is directly speaking into that. And I also want to talk about how we're not even left alone in order to just white-knuckle it to believe, but the Holy Spirit has a really pivotal and central role in helping us believe. So first I want to talk about why sight is insufficient. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. Let me give you a classic antidote I remember from my grandfather, kind of giving you the the picture of the difference here. He said, when you drive from Fort Worth to Houston at night, you can only see 20 feet ahead of you because of your headlights. But you know your map, and you know that in all that Texan darkness, I-45 eventually is going to get you to Houston. I wish I could do it in my grandpa's accent. In essence, walking by sight is like living your entire life just on the basis of what is right in front of you, 20 feet ahead in the headlights. Sight's temporal, it's finite, it has blinders. But faith is being able to live and judge reality not just on the basis of what is at that very moment happening in front of you, but on the basis of what God has spoken and promised about the past, present, and future. And because of that, faith is infinite in scope, and it doesn't change. Now, the bad news is we humans are prone to walk by sight and not by faith. If you're given the option, at least for me, we prefer sight. The Bible confirms that time and time again. Think about Israel. God rescues Israel from Egypt with miraculous signs and wonders. I'm talking crazy stuff, and they see it with their eyes. But then they're pinned in between the Red Sea and a sea of Egyptian soldiers. And what do we do? I love this part of the Easter vigil where the actors play this out. We should just go back to Egypt. It'd be better if we died there. They panic. And it goes on and on. For Israel and for us, sight is fickle and powerful. Because we are so easily affected by what happens in front of us. But what the Bible wants to teach us about sight and faith, and what I think Jesus is getting at here with Thomas, is actually deeper and more profound than that. You see, deep, deep in the dark and mysterious waters of your heart, you know the places where we don't navigate often in a hashtag culture like ours, places that come up maybe once every decade in a breakdown conversation or in a doctor's office. It's in those places that lies the seat of what you truly believe about the reality of the world. And the Bible teaches that if you don't experience a tectonic continental shift in that deep place, what you see will do nothing to change your mind. 
In other words, sight does not control that center of belief. It's actually the other way around. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Experience by itself proves nothing. If a man doubts whether he is dreaming or waking, no experiment can solve his doubt since every experiment itself may be a part of the dream. Experience proves this or that or nothing according to the preconceptions that we bring to it. Now, that is super abstract, but Jesus actually tells this story that makes, I think, this idea really tangible to us, and it really relates to what Jesus is saying to Thomas. The story is the rich man and Lazarus. If you've got a Bible, you can flip to Luke 16. If you don't, maybe just write in your notes or something Luke 16 because it's worth taking a look at later on. But in broad strokes, there's this rich guy who lives this lavish life, and at his gate is a suffering beggar named Lazarus who asks for alms every day. They both die. Lazarus goes to heaven, the rich guy goes to Hades, and the rich man looks up and sees Lazarus hanging out with Abraham, and he is miserable and begs for mercy. And Abraham basically says, I'm sorry, you made your choice, and besides, there's nothing I can do for you. There's a fixed chasm between us. But then it gets really interesting. So I'm going to read a little bit of it here. This is the rich guy speaking. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so he, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now to pause a second, that's a super reasonable response. Basically, the rich guy wants Abraham to pull a Scrooge stunt and send back Lazarus like Marley and Marley. Just picture that in your head. It's exactly what's happening here. But what does Abraham respond with? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. So the rich guy wants his brothers to have visible, supernatural proof, just like Marley and Marley in the Christmas Carol. And Abraham responds, why do they need that? They got the Bible. (laughs) To which the rich guy says, Are you serious? That's ridiculous. He's not going to believe because of the Bible. Send back somebody from the dead, and then they will repent. We can sympathize with that, right? Don't blame him for thinking a book might not be as powerful as somebody coming back from the dead and knocking on your door at midnight. But what does Abraham say? This is the climax of the whole story. It's in verse 31. He says to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. One of my mom's favorite Christmas traditions is watching the 1970 Albert Finney version of Scrooge. And when I was a kid, I thought it was super lame. But actually, ever since I've been married, we've watched it every year. And I have yet to make it through without weeping. (laughs) I'm always struck by the second chance Scrooge gets for just one night of seeing more than what was 20 feet in front of him in the headlights. And when he does, man, he experiences that tectonic, continental shift in his life. Everything changes. This story Jesus tells terrifies me. Because Jesus is saying, every single time I pick up my Bible, every time I sit in the seats you're in right now and listen to the word of God read, I'm being confronted with something more powerful and more consequential than somebody rising from the dead and knocking on my door at midnight. Abraham is not withholding from the rich guy's brothers. He's not just being cruel. 
He's just saying, if your brothers don't take God at his word, nothing they see is going to change that. And that sentiment holds true throughout all of the scriptures. Before we get to John and Thomas and John, so many people keep on asking Jesus for signs. And what is the gospel full of? Signs. But they're like, do another one. And then he does another one, and it grieves him as they continue to ask for signs. So let's regroup. We've come a long way from doubting Thomas, but what is that? What does rich man and Lazarus have to do with this and with resurrection faith and what we're saying? I think it amounts to this. When it comes to believing in Jesus and in his resurrection, Jesus is saying, you don't need what you really think you need. Sight is fickle. It's temporal. It's untrustworthy. And it will never bring about that deep, tectonic, continental shift that Jesus so desperately wants us to undergo. Before we move on, I want to pause a moment and be very clear. God works in the world. He does signs and wonders. If he didn't, we would have nothing to believe in from the start. What's so funny about this passage from John is that it's like so tactile. You know, he's talking about the wounds in his hands and his side. It's so earthy and fleshy. And at the same time, Jesus uses that to speak out of it. Because God wants to wean us off judging things solely by our sight. He wants something better for us, something that will give us an even greater liberation than Thomas or Scrooge was able to come to because of sight. He wants us to have faith. Faith, as the Bible so famously puts it in Hebrews, is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. It's living your life and judging reality, not just on the basis of what you can see in the headlights, but navigating the world on the basis of truth you know in your heart, regardless of what you see. It's driving and knowing in the deep caverns of your soul that I-45 is going to get you to Houston. From Genesis to Revelation, God is wanting us to put our faith in him and in his word, which is an extension of who he is. This is better for us because it liberates us from constantly worrying of what might come around the corner in our headlights, and it also liberates us from consistently needing proofs that what God has said is actually true. Think about it. If you come to believe in Jesus solely on the basis of sight, anything you see that seems to contradict what God has spoken will immediately cast his faithfulness into question. It could be turmoil at your job. could be that much-feared 3 a.m. phone call. could be another news report about ISIS or the economy. When we hear that kind of stuff, man, we, we are so tempted, at least I know I am, to sink into anxiety, just like Israel at the Red Sea. But God wants something better for us. He wants us to believe that what he said is true, full stop, so that we are no longer tossed about by the shiftiness of what it means to be a human in this world. That is why sight can never compete with faith when it comes to belief. But resurrection faith is even deeper and more profound than that, and that is what is so powerful and authoritative about what Jesus accomplished at Easter. To get at this, I want to talk about March Madness for a second which directly relates to resurrection faith. (laughs) Most people think of faith as something like this, okay? 
Your team is told that you will make it all the way through the tournament to the national championship. But you find yourself in the final four. And you're down two points, and there's 10 seconds left on the clock, and your team doesn't even have the ball. At that point, faith would be something like this. It's like believing in the assurance of what you can't see. That somehow, some way, you're going to come out of the huddle, timeout, whatever. Your team's going to steal the ball, and somebody's going to put up a beautiful Steph Curry three-pointer for the win. Now, in a sense, that's true. But what God wants to teach us through the resurrection is even more audacious. Resurrection faith is being told you're going to the championship, full stop. And you come out of your timeout, two points down without the ball, and the whistle blows, and the opposing team scores, time runs out, and your team loses. Resurrection faith is being able, even then, to walk back to the locker room and still believe in what is at that point categorically impossible. That somehow, some way, your team's still going to the championship. You might have a teammate whose you know, name might be Thomas, who's like, that's ridiculous, I'm not going to believe in that. But you're, you're still trusting in what had been promised. Now, I know that's a ridiculous analogy. It's got holes. But it is no less audacious than someone being executed and laid in a tomb and being able to stand in front of it and believe that somehow, some way, they will rise from the dead. Again, let me explain this and kind of what I mean by an example from the Bible. The great example of resurrection faith in the Old Testament is when God tested Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And it's in that first re- reading we heard this morning from in Hebrews. On a personal level, one can't even begin to imagine what that would have been like for Abraham. But more than that, Isaac was the son of the promise. He was the physical embodiment of God's covenant that through Abraham's seed, God would restore and bless the entire world. So God was asking Abraham to end and kill the very center of what he had promised up to that point to Abraham. Of course, we know that Abraham obeyed God, and just as Abraham raised the knife, God stayed his hand. And that's when God says, now I know that you fear the Lord. But what is so profound about that story is that Abraham still believed and acted upon what God had promised, even though what God had requested of him was an exact contradiction to the promise. He was still able to say, it will be provided on the mountain of the Lord, even though he could not see the ram caught in the thicket. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham had resurrection faith. I don't know if you caught that in our reading, but it says he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. That's why Abraham is the father of the faith. He got it. And if you think about it, that's only a dim reflection of what Jesus did at Easter. It's different, of course, because Jesus is both the son of God and son of man, but Jesus is the epitome of resurrection faith. See, Jesus was asked to go up on a mountain himself. He stood on the brink of an eternal abyss on Good Friday. And he believed God's word so much that he was willing to take a swan dive off of that cliff into complete and utter darkness. I think sometimes we can remove the humanity from Jesus in these things. Jesus was not unaffected by what his eyes saw. He sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what he was about to do, but Jesus trusted that his father would raise him on the third day by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he confidently went to the cross. In fact, one of the prophecies about Jesus in Isaiah says this of him, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes 
see. That is resurrection faith. It's founded on belief in God and taking him at his word and not in anything our eyes see. Jesus wants us to experience that faith in the deepest roots of our hearts. And when we do, literally, nothing can shake us because nothing is darker or more conclusive than Jesus being killed and laid in a tomb. I mean, the time on the clock ran out. The bad guys won. But Jesus was raised from the dead. Amen? The resurrection is a lesson. It's meant to teach us how to view and understand the world. And when you learn to take God at his work, at his word like that, something happens to you. No longer do the 3 a.m. phone calls or the heartbreaking losses at your career or watching a loved one spiral out of control completely overhaul your life and your mind and cast you into full-on anxiety and doubt. Hear me, it does not mean you're not unaffected. Remember, even Jesus was affected by what his eyes saw. But it does mean that since your faith is deeper and more rooted than sight, it will not shake that inner confidence because you know the world is God's and God is a God of resurrection. No river too wide, no heart too hard, no game too lost, no corpse too dead. Now, I know that's a lot to ask of anyone. Whether you're here and you've been following Jesus for like 50 years or you were here through Holy Week and are back and are thinking if you believe that these things are true. But the beautiful part about this is that the application of this is not break, go home, read the Bible and believe it. It's not simply a faith of you white knuckling belief. You see, when Jesus ascended to heaven and left us, he did not leave us as orphans. Notice just before doubting Thomas and John, Jesus breathes on his disciples and imparts to them the Holy Spirit. Resurrection faith, this, what we're talking about, is attainable to us. First, because God has actually acted in history. These things are true and real. But also a ministry of the Holy Spirit is to manifest to us in extremely personable and tangible ways what can only be known and seen through the eyes of faith. So not only do we have God's actual actions throughout history, we have his eternal word in the scripture as a witness and a promise. And we have God himself dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit, ministering to us these truths in the deep place of our being. God has not left you to just do that by yourself. Think of Peter and Jesus. When Peter confesses that Jesus is in the Christ, Jesus didn't go, mm, nice job. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. The Holy Spirit helps us believe. He is close to us. And that means that we have everything we need to believe in the resurrection right now. At this very moment. We've learned from Jesus that sight is fickle and that we're blessed that it's better for us if we believe without seeing. And we've learned that the most powerful and authoritative ingredients, if you will, of faith are at this very moment ours. 
We started with Doubting Thomas, and our conversation this morning has taken us on a journey, but I want to I return back to John 20, because the story doesn't stop with Jesus saying, blessed are they who believe yet have not seen. If you will, look back with me. Right after verse 29, John goes on. So read with me in uh, verses 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If the story of Doubting Thomas was a movie, up until this point, all of us have been spectators. It's like you're sitting on your couch in your sweatpants watching Netflix, eating some Cheetos, commenting on, you know, critiquing, critiquing uh, Thomas's performance. But when we get to verse 29, it's like the screen pauses. And John the director of the film, walks into the frame of sight, points at you through the TV and goes, hey, you. And you're like, me? And he's like, yeah, I'm talking to you. And John says, Jesus just said, blessed are you if if you believe and have not seen. And I have written this entire script for your sake so that you would come to believe in these things and have life in his name. We have everything we need to believe in Jesus and in his resurrection and have find life in his name right now. I want to leave us with two really simple applications. Number one, Thomas says, unless I see him, I won't believe. Jesus accommodates his doubt, of course, just like Stuart talked about last week. We all doubt. Every single one of us has felt that way. Nobody gets out of this, this question. And Jesus is so patient with us. He can take it. But Jesus wants to liberate, he wants to liberate us from that. Search your heart. Is there a, unless I blank, you fill in the gap in your life right now, that is an obstacle to faith in Jesus? Is there something you think you need in order to believe in Jesus that has been delaying a commitment or faith in Jesus and in his resurrection to another time, another day? The Bible says today, If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Second, I want us to realize that the resurrection is not something that we just celebrate on Easter. Jesus' resurrection was first, but we will certainly follow in his footsteps. And belief in the resurrection is meant to cause that tectonic, continental shift in our heart of hearts. And it is meant to help us live and see things, and it helps us change the way we view our relationships, our jobs. It's not just hope in a future future resurrection. It's something that influences everything we do now. Once again, search your heart. Is there a trial you're currently suffering, like a hardship in your life that is controlling you and that has made you unable to give glory to God until you see it redeemed or changed? What would it mean to presently live and face that trial with resurrection faith? Could God be calling you into a deeper and more life-giving experience of belief in his word and in who he is and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. 
For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.